Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 9th, 2015. This is episode 1496 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. You know, we haven't had a Friday, Friday, Friday in a long time because of my vacation around Christmas and New Year's, or as I call them, the holidays, and Hopefully, calling two holidays the holidays, or actually three, because I consider Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Does it offend anybody in reverse offensive things? But anyway, uh, on that note, it is Friday, Friday, Friday. It's time for your calls to the Think Line at 866-65-THINK, 866-65-8-4-4-6-5. You call that number, you'll get a voicemail message thing. You leave me a message, you might hear yourself the next Friday or the Friday after that. After about two weeks, if you haven't heard yourself and you want to be on the air, it's probably a good idea to recall in because that means you probably didn't get through the filtering. Sometimes people don't get through filtering because they don't follow the rules. I'll give you the rules in just a second. Sometimes they don't get through because, well, you just had a bad connection and you didn't know it. And sometimes people don't get through because, well, there's just too many calls and I don't get to screen them all and eventually I move on to newer calls. Anyway, uh, here's the rules. Call from a quiet area. If you call from like a truck with the window down or while running a weed eater or on the back of a motorcycle, uh, I'm not going to use your call. Uh, look for bars on the cell phone. Like I said, sometimes you have a bad connection and don't know it, but if you have one bar, move somewhere to you have two or three before you make your call if you're on a cell phone. And uh, then the next part of the rules is make your point or ask your question immediately. Hi, Jack. This is Bob. My question is da-da-da-da-da-da. My statement is da-da-da-da-da. Here's the details. Do that, you are much more likely to get on the air. If I'm listening to your call, screening it on a Friday morning or a Thursday evening, which is the two times I do most of my screening, and I am looking at the thing, and it says 32 seconds, and I still don't know why you're calling me, delete. Not because I don't care, because of time constraints. So those are the rules. Anyway, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and... Uh, Take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor the day number one today right now is BulkAmmo.com. Hey, ammo prices have come down. Now is the time to stock up. I am not the guy that believes in buy high and sell low. I'm the guy that believes in buy low and sell high or buy low and keep one or the other. With ammo, I like to buy low and shoot, you know, accurate. But anyway, BulkAmmo.com is my source when I'm looking to buy lots of ammo at one time. It should be your source as well. Hey, it's Bulk Ammo. What more do I need to say? Uh, often I say ready-made resources is the company that says what it does and does what it says. But the truth is, so does Bulk Ammo. It's exactly what you'll find there. Now is the time to stock up before the next uh, hysteria moment and gun control grabbing takes place. And you watch the prices of all things go up, and ammo usually leads the way. Maybe one day, 22 Long Rifle will come back down into reasonable prices. But for now, stock up on the stuff that is reasonable prices. They've got it at bulk ammo. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original Survival Podcast sponsor. Do you guys realize that uh, Safe Castle just passed their sixth year? Six continuous years supporting the Survival Podcast. They have been with us since January of 2009. That's pretty amazing. That really is, and that says something about how loyal they are to our audience. Get on over to SafeCastle.com and check out all their great stuff for your prepping needs. And remember, they do have their Discount Buyers Club, $49, lifetime membership, discounts on everything they sell forever. And if you're a member of My Support Brigade, you know what it costs you? 
Absolutely nothing. That's right. If you join the MSB, uh, which I'll tell you about in just a second, you can see they're one of the first listed supporters there. Uh, follow the instructions. You'll get that membership for free. And since my membership's $50 a year, it basically makes your membership a dollar for the first year. That's what a great supporter Safe Castle is. And if you want it for your prepping, they've probably got it with great service and great pricing. Check them out today, safecastle.com. Uh, next up, on the MSB, yeah, that's one great benefit, but there's over 60 companies giving you discounts now on stuff you're buying anyway, from the practical to the tactical, from gardens to guns and everything in between in the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, All of you even qualify for an additional discount. Email me before, not after you join. Uh, put service discount in the subject line. Send the email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Everyone else, it is a great deal, even at 50 bucks a year. And remember, you can join for five bucks a month. Uh, you can join for $30 twice a year. You can join for three months for 15 bucks. And uh, if you decide you want to go to a longer frequency, just cancel your recurring membership and, and join for that new one. Or if you decide this thing sucks and I, it really wasn't worth five bucks and I don't want to do this anymore, cancel and don't renew. And if you ever join the Member Support Brigade and you feel that you haven't got your money's worth, cancel, email me and tell me so and I will refund your money. I have never refused to refund anybody's money who's ever said that they didn't think the MSB was worth uh, what they paid for it. Given that's been one person in six years, been pretty easy policy to keep but in general anybody that wants a refund gets a refund if you don't feel you've got what you wanted out of the msb if i didn't believe in it i wouldn't sell it to you anyway with that let us look at the year that was the episode the year's 1496 i have the expulsion of the portuguese jews and the paris shootings i have leonardo's broken flight i'm going to read leonardo's broken flight mainly because fridays are long and this one's shorter That's how I made the decision today, because they're both great. If you want to see more about either one of these, go to tspwiki.com for the year 1496. The TSP Wiki is, of course, the survival, sustainability, self-sufficiency, and historical wiki, uh, with our biggest contributor being Alex Shrugged, who does the historical segments for us. Leonardo da Vinci was fascinated with birds in flight, and his enthusiasm has led to drawings of flying machines, possibly gliders, a parachute, and even an early helicopter. Sometime early this year, Leonardo tests one of his designs for a flying machine. He sends his assistant out with the device, but the man breaks his leg. It's back to the drawing board. It's not clear which of these designs was tested, but like Archimedes, some of his ideas remained on the drawing board to come down to modern day and simulate the imagination. My take by Alex Shrug, this account might be a myth, but it could have happened. People will continue to be fascinated with flight. Many will lose their lives to various designs. In the 1800s, the problem of flight will be given over to the smartest man in America, Dr. Samuel Langley, the secretary of the Smithsonian. He was given a substantial government grant and produced a number of working models, but the model never scaled up. In 1896, he crashed into the Potomac and gave up. He realized he needed more power, but the world would have to wait for more efficient engines. In fact, such an engine existed, but it is likely he didn't know it. Powered flight would have to wait until the Wright brothers managed it in 1903. I have a couple things in my take. Number one, once again, the private sector did what government could not. Because government doesn't have the impetus and the motivation that the private sector does. If government fails, you get another grant or you go do something different. In the private sector, if you fail, you go bankrupt, at least in the way that we're supposed to run our economy, where losses and gains are both private. But in, of course, our modern neo-fascist state, often the, the gains are private, but the losses are public. 
Just saying when we start bailing out companies. But in any event, once again, we see private sector, the Wright brothers, doing what government couldn't do. I actually have a totally different lesson for you into the modern day with today's history segment, though. And it's about people that build a flying machine of some sort, and they look for a cliff, and they jump off it, and they crash and break a leg or their head or their entire body and die. This is stupid. And so many people do it still today. Jack, what do you mean? I don't see anybody out jumping off of a cliff with a flying machine. See, this is what I'm saying. you got to start learning from one person doing one thing and see the pattern relationship to other things. So companies spend millions of dollars on marketing campaigns without testing them first. Huh? See? People quit jobs to go into business without actually starting the business first and seeing if it's viable before they quit their job. They think it's sink or swim, so I'll swim. You might sink. Anything that's going to work on a large scale can first be tested on a smaller scale. Now, our government friend in this instance sort of kind of did that, but he just didn't get it right. But what I mean by that is, before you take off on a giant marketing campaign as a major corporation, it's very easy to test market that campaign and see if it's going to scale up. And when you're doing this with a flying machine, it makes me think of a stuntman I heard interviewed one time. And he said, you know, when I was a kid, I jumped off of a lot of things to see if I could do it. And sometimes you get hurt and sometimes you don't. But if I had a young person out there that was hell-bent on going into my industry, I wouldn't tell them to play it safe all the time. I wouldn't tell them not to test his limits. But I would tell them this. If you're going to try jumping out of a tree to see if it works, get a cinder block and jump off of it and see how that works. If that works, get a, get a stool and jump off of it. Then go a little bit up the tree and jump. And then go a little bit more and a little bit more. You're going to get to a point where it starts to hurt. Either figure out how to make it not hurt or know that's as high as you're able to go right now. Incrementally move into the situation to determine that what works and refine it until you figure out how to do more. This is a huge lesson for America today. And I'll tell you what, it's not that less businesses would be started, more would be started and more would survive. And more initiatives would be started and more would survive and more would succeed. We're kind of an all-or-nothing society anymore, and that's a huge mistake. My take by Jack Spierko. And with that, let's go ahead and take your first call for today's show. Hey, Jack, man, what's going on with these gas prices? Just want to get your take on it, brother. Peace. Okay, I have a lot to say about this whole panic that gas prices are going down, which is, I, 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 I'm almost speechless. But as I was screening today's calls, as I got toward the end of my screening and was looking for that one more call uh, to put on the show, I actually ended up with a call that I pulled forward in response to this call. So before I even give my take, I'd like to give you guys a, a li another listener's completely different take on this, and I mean completely differently, because this listener has nothing to say at all about the impact of oil prices or gas prices on the economy of the nation, only the economy of the individual and what it means for opportunity for the individual. So before I give my answer to this, I just want to give a completely different view. Here you go. Here's a different listener's take on this. Jack, now that gas prices are falling, here in Omaha it's $1.99. There's no excuse for everybody to have a year's supply of gasoline in their garage, P-R-I-G, inside each uh, container. So now it's time to stock up. 
Merry Christmas. So that takes us in two different worlds, does it not? And the, to be fair to the first caller, he didn't really express a tremendous amount of concern about gas prices. He really didn't. But I can, I can hear it sort of in there. And it is the big thing that everybody's abuzz about right now. So, I mean, I want you to think about this. For many years, since the price of gas went skyrocketing high, We've heard about how it's breaking the back of the, the working man, and people can't even afford to fill a tank of gas anymore. How horrible this is. Then, because we start to actually produce oil domestically, and because we begin to adapt to a new economy in, in very creative ways, and because American productivity and innovation are not completely dead yet, though sometimes I wonder, we see gas prices come way, way, way down. Okay. And then everybody starts freaking out that the end is near because gas prices came down. So starting with the first take on what's going on, here's what's going on. We've heard for years we have oil in America. If we will drill it and produce it, we don't need the rest of the world. And in spite of the current presidential administration, the United States has become one of the leading producers of oil and gas in the World, So much so that we are on a pathway to not need anybody else's oil except for Canada and Mexico, who are pretty good allies at all for about 20 years, at least, maybe more. We don't really know yet. And we are not even really yet beginning to harvest oil domestically. And you want to know the real reason that Obama won't sign off on the Keystone Pipeline? Because we can produce so much oil domestically at this point, they don't even want us bringing in the Canadian oil any more than we absolutely have to to maintain the economy of the United States. Because they want domestic oil purchased at this point. Yes, they do. They want to still continue to tell us that we need to invade foreign countries over oil, even though we don't. But the only thing that's going on is there's more oil now being produced than there was before, and there's less oil being used, so supply and demand, uh, the price has gone down. Now, this leads many in the gloom and doom world that always want to forecast the economy crashing off the end of oblivion and never returning ever again, ever, 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 never, ever infinity, to say this is an indicator that that's going to happen. Now, the interesting thing is you shouldn't look at this one thing and the source saying it, and ask if they're making a valid case. You should look at the source and ask if they're always saying that everything that ever happens is an indicator that the economy is going to crash into oblivion and never return. The reality is there is no world in which cheap energy is bad for a nation long term. That doesn't exist. Now, could there be some major market upheaval over this? Yeah. Could there be some crash... Uh, over this, possibly. Could there be some bubble hiccup stuff over this? Yeah. Could there be some money lost? Oh, yeah. But the same companies that will lose money on the productivity are going to make an ass load of money on the refinement. You understand that Exxon doesn't just pump oil. Exxon pumps oil, and then Exxon refines oil, and then Exxon goes and turns around and wholesales oil to their own people and then retails it as gasoline or other products to the market. That it has this four steps that it's involved in. That the companies that do the exploration and all, yeah, you can say, well, they're different companies. They're either subsidiaries, or once they hit it, and they've got it really producing, generally they either become subsidiaries or the structures are bought out by the oil companies. 
right? And the same people that own Exxon own things like Merck. Right? They don't care where they make their money. They just care that they make their money. So the long-term aspects of cheap oil and gas are good. It's one of the best things in the world that could ever happen to America, and now everybody's freaking out that it is. Do you know why? Well, some people make a living on freaking out. I don't know who you're talking about, but oh, they're going to get us on the baby. You know who I'm talking about, right? Okay. Some people make a living on that. There's a whole industry that make a living on freaking out. So that's normal. But what about the mainstream that are pointing to, oh, this could be bad, this could be bad. This is so when they take this opportunity to begin to tax fuels at a higher level, you don't complain about it. Okay? Because that's what they're going to do. They're going to sneak new gas taxes, new carbon taxes, new ass taxes, new everything taxes into fuel and energy during this downturn because you ain't going to feel it. And then you're going to have a little bit of an inkling as an average sheeple that, hey, since the price is going up and they said it was going too low, this is actually a good thing for us. Because nobody's going to ask, why is the price going up? Because it ain't going to go up that much because you, know, you throw a dime in here and nickel in there and all of a sudden gas was a dollar eighty five and now it's two bucks, but everybody still has fresh in their mind when it was two eighty, so that don't seem very expensive. Maybe even drive the price a little lower so you know you can have sub two dollar gas with some new fees and taxes and stuff in it. Some California don't even give a shit. They just tax the ass out of it. They don't care. Right? They California doesn't count in this. And your other liberal utopia states that are all on the verge of bankruptcy don't count in this. I'm all about mainstream America. I'm talking about Midwest. I'm talking about the, the country folks. I'm talking about everybody buying into this. Now, I know you won't, uh, listeners. I know you won't. And it's not because you have me to tell you this. It's because you're listening to people like me and lots of other people, and you're also asking your own questions, and you're saying, what the hell does this really mean? So you're going to find your own answers, whether it's through me or not. But most of the people around you, if you're anywhere near a crowded location right now, this is what I want you to do. Look around, like in work or in a car, and look and see. You see most of those people? Most of those people are programmed morons. Now, those are the programmed morons. They're not really morons. I think every human being is brilliant if given the opportunity to express their brilliance. But I think you can take a brilliant person and program moronic behavior into them. And most Americans have been successfully programmed into moronic behavior. And that's why we actually freak out both when gas goes up and comes down. So what do you want it to do? Now here's what I say. Go get some gas cans and fill them up while gas is cheap and start creating your rotating storage, just like the second caller said. Expect upheaval in the market over this, but here's what I actually fear about a big market bust. I see this being the one-two punch, maybe, the the like what we had with the last recession, right? We had the banking sector get kind of ape shit, but we all knew that wasn't really going to crash because they make their own money, right? So just like the energy sector, the energy sector sets its own prices. If they if, if it goes too low, they just cut production back, and then they they. <laughs> You know, and then they just barely meet demand and drive it back up. Don't think these people don't know what they're doing. So it's the energy sector is a lot like the financial sector, right? They they know you have to buy gas. They know you have to buy oil. They know you have to heat your home, cool your house. They know all these things are true. So they can control that a great deal. But then what happened with the banking sector was the other side of it came into real estate, 
And real estate was something they couldn't really control because in the end, if Joe can't pay his bills, Joe can't pay his bills. And if Joe's house goes up for foreclosure, it ain't that big, but when there's a thousand Joes and it destroys real estate values all through an entire state, it's a trillion-dollar problem. You can't just make go away, and it created a major recession. So what could be the second punch? Now, housing and banking were closely interrelated. This one-two punch may not be closely interrelated. What could happen? And this is something to watch out for with your investments, not the economy going off the end of oblivion forever, but with a major correction, and it's something that I'm going to be paying very close attention to with our investments going forward. How close is the second punch of a student uh, loan debt bubble? How close is that? I'm going to talk about this more on Monday, but that's what could happen. You get an upset market, and you get a student loan bubble pop, and the ass clown just did something that actually could hurt the student loan market a lot more. Except, will it really happen, or how will it really happen? And that's yet to be determined. But in case you haven't heard, Barack Obama's proposed, we should make it free for any student that wants to work for it, but he hasn't defined work for it, I guess it means get good grades, to go to community college for two years. So, I mean, basically you're talking about 13th and 14th grade. If you graduate 12th in a high enough level is what I'm getting out of it so far. See, work for it to me would be, it's a few thousand dollars a semester to go to community college. Go get a job waiting tables or tending bar and take your ass to community college if you want to work for it. Works for a lot of people. But no, the government's going to pay for it. Now, what if you take students out of that first two years of university where they would pay and shove them into a community college system, which, by the way, is already overbloated with attendance. We have to build more community colleges. That's going to cost a lot of money. But I actually think, in a weird roundabout way, this may be a plan to stop the student loan bubble from popping. I'm not saying it'll work, but I'll explain to you why I think that might be what it is on Monday. For now, low gas prices are not a bad thing, though they could cause a sector hiccup. But watch out for something dogpiling on that sector. That's where it turns into a problem. And the biggest risk we have right now is a $1.5 trillion student loan bubble. And a lot of kids that might just say, you know what, if they're going to give college away for free to people, I'm just not paying them. Of course, there's a lot of recourse to that. Anyway, nice way to get started today, huh? Let's go ahead and take a totally unrelated question. Jack, what are the pros and cons of ducks relative to chickens and rabbits? Background is I have chickens now, and I like them. They've been great, but I would do their pen and such totally differently if I had to start over. And I might be starting over in the spring. And so I was thinking I was going to do rabbits and chickens together in one house and then maybe possibly do a pond or aquaponics or something like that. But now you have me thinking about ducks. And so... How do they fit in? Which you know, what are the pros and cons of uh, chickens, ducks, and rabbits uh, for both eggs and meat? And finally, are ducks and fish compatible? You know, in the same pond, or you know, are they complementary, or do they hurt each other? Okay, thanks a lot for all you do, Jack. Bye. Um, I just did a whole show on ducks versus chickens, or actually on ducks, but I talked a lot about how they compare to chickens. So I'm just going to refer you to that recent show. Other than the ad, every day I love my ducks more 
and I like my chickens less. When I look at what the chickens do to the land and what's necessary to control them, and I, I admit that if I could just step electronet fencing into the ground, which most people can do, I might have a different feeling about my chickens. However, however, even with that being said, it is a management step I would have to take that I just don't have to do with a duck. I could literally paddock shift my ducks with 10 pieces of freestanding cattle panel just about anywhere I want them on my property, connecting the cross and perimeter fencing with zip ties, and just move them whenever I want to, if I, want, if I even needed to. So the ease with which I can do that is so excessive compared to that of a chicken. The, the duck just wins hand down. The eggs taste better. They lay more eggs than a chicken. They have a longer laying cycle. They tolerate the cold better. They actually tolerate the heat better, too, because they go in water. So since they go in water, they can cool themselves down a lot easier than, than a chicken can. So I never see my ducks panting in the midsummer. When they get hot enough, they go find one of their pools and they cool off. A chicken sits in a shade going, <laughs> like a dog. So... I leave it there. Meat-wise, chicken versus duck. There's a reason that a duck costs $30 and a chicken costs $5 when you're buying factory meat. I mean, that, that, that is just, right there you understand the whole thing. There's a reason that when you go to a fine restaurant, generally the chef is far more proud of his duck breast than a chicken dish. There's, there's a reason people pay more for it. And... It is really possible, and I'm about, because I want to make sure that I have my procedures with my ducks really, really down well when I start taking their lives. I'm about today, when we go to the grocery store, I'm going to pick up a duck or two. And I'm going to do some videos for you uh, that are both for you guys and for me to refine my technique with duck butchering and duck product preparation. So when I go out there and take one of those cute little drakes that are in excess and chop his little head off, I know I'm doing right by him. And I think that's something that, that kind of testifies to those of us who produce our own meat, how much we value the lives we take to feed our families and nourish our families. And that we understand that that animal is giving up its life so that we can, we can further our own. But we also know that that animal is cared for better than any animal at any factory farm ever, the end infinity period. Uh, now, ducks versus rabbits. I want to tell you, if somebody said to me, Jack... I will produce rabbits and sell them to you at cost. I would probably eat two rabbits a week. I like rabbit that much. If somebody would do that with ducks and do all the work for me, I might buy four ducks a week. I don't know. I mean, I like duck a lot too, just saying. And they are a lot of work to produce uh, into an end meat product. So I will tell you the big advantage to me of a rabbit over a duck is I can literally make two cuts with a knife and a rabbit and have the skin off of it in about three minutes. And that's going slow and playing around with it. Um, I can skin a rabbit, bam, and it's done. And there is no there is no real desire for anybody to like treat a rabbit like a small pig and leave a skin on. right? So there's no real advantage to a skin on rabbit. All the advantages with, with most poultry anyway involve leaving the skin on. I do a lot of skinning of cold chickens just for time's sake. But in the end, I know I'm losing a really valuable commodity. It's just a time thing. So for the duck to be worth processing, I have to pluck it. If you have a plucker, that helps, but there's still a lot of you know small feathers and stuff like that. So the rabbit's easier to process. 
the duck produces more and asks for less in every step except the processing. So a rabbit is going to live in a cage. Or it's going to live in some kind of little rabbit mobile colony like there's a gal that does it. But it's, it requires a lot more management. You know, you don't open the gate in the morning, all the bunnies go do their thing, and then they come back at night and you close the gate to protect them. So ducks have that going for them. A rabbit is a meal. And that's about what you get out of a rabbit. You might be able to make some bone stock out of it. It'll be very similar to chicken stock. A duck, parting out a duck, I would go this way with. You take the leg quarters, and you take those two leg, you know, the, the, the leg and the thigh. And those are two portions. So if you have a two-person family, that is one meal. Why is one, one meal of protein? Then we take and we cut kind of the breast bone area out and pull that out, and we set that to the side. And then we de-breast the two breast fillets. Those are big enough that those are two more portions. That's another meal. Okay? So I've got a meal out of the leg quarters. I've got a meal out of the breasts. And you can roast a whole duck, and it's beautiful if you do it right, but they're really two totally different cuts of meat, and they really are better suited to be cooked in two totally different ways. Breast, we might want to sear the skin in a pan and then slow roast it to a medium. We might cook the legs a little bit slower. We might do them in a confit, like I talked about recently. So you've got that. So two meals. Can't do that with a rabbit. Leg quarters and, and let's say, uh, back strap of a rabbit do not make two meals for two people. They just don't. They're not as big of an animal. So I got to kill two to three rabbits to make one duck. Now, I'm not done with the duck yet. The duck has a wonderful fat product compared to the rabbit. The rabbit's are pretty low fat. The duck meat is actually very lean, but there's fat in the skin and in the organs. So now that I've parted this duck out, I still have the wings. I can take those and I can put them with the leg quarters if I want to, or I can use them in a stock production. What I actually would prefer to do is cut the wing tips off and set them in the third pile. And I'll explain what that's for in a second. You take the, 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 the drumette and the wing and put them with the leg quarters. And you make a bigger portion. Or they could go aside and you could build up enough of them. Let's say you process four birds where they could stand alone as a as portion or two or three by their own. So one way or another they become a portion. The wingtip goes in that third pile. Now I have this whole rest of the bird. I have... The, the breast deboned, I have the back, I have the, the tail, all that. I'm going to cut the tail off, the Pope's nose as they call it, and I'm going to put that with the wingtips. Okay? And then I'm going to skin the back of the bird. And I'm going to take all of the skin from around the neck, from around the flaps, and all off the back. Everything that's not on a portion, the leg quarters, uh, the wing, or the, uh, uh, the breast. And I'm going to put that in, in the, that third pile. So I've got this big pile of skin. And I'm going to get as much skin as I can. I'm going to take all of the internal fat. I'm going to put it in that skin pile. Okay? This is all stuff you just wouldn't do with a rabbit. You're, you're just, you're just not there. And I'm going to take all the bones. And I'm going to put them in another pile. So now I've got leg quarters. I've got breasts. I've got wings. And maybe I have to do a couple ducks to make the wings their own portion. But I've had those... So I got, let's call it two and a half meals right there. I'm going to take the bones, I'm going to put them in a roasting pan, and I'm going to roast them in the oven at about 350 degrees for about 30 to 40 minutes. Then I'm going to take them and I'm going to make a bone stock. I'm going to use that in other cooking. I'm going to use it directly. I'm going to use it with pickings of meat and make duck soup. I'm going to do something with it. But I'm going to make a bone stock out of it. 
And then I'm going to take all those wingtips, the Pope's nose, which is the, the tail, and all of the skin, and I'm going to put it into a pot. In that pot, I'm going to add a half a cup of water. I'm going to slowly bring that up to a low boil, and I'm going to boil the water off slowly. And by the time I do, I'm going to be rendering all of the fat out of there. Over time, the fat's going to start to almost crisp up the skins. I'm going to take the tail out and the wingtips out at that point because I've probably got most of the fat out of them that I can. I'm going to set those aside, and I'm going to include them in my bone stock when I make the bone stock. The rest of it, I'm going to make sure I've rendered the fat nice and clean out of it, and I'm going to strain the fat off the rest of the pieces of skin. Then I'm going to salt those pieces of skin, and I have basically something analogous to pork rinds. And they're fabulous, and I can either eat them straight, or I can use them as like croutons. I can put them on top of a soup. So I'm going to have that. And I'm going to take that fat, and I'm going to use it in my cooking. And I'm going to store that in jars in the refrigerator. I might use that to do confit. So I'll take the same fat from the same duck and use it to confit the wings or the legs. Right. So when you talk about meat, rabbits just don't give you all of this. Because I also have the gizzard from the duck, the liver from the duck. Now, rabbit liver is fabulous. But I can take duck gizzards and save them up. And gizzard tends to be tough. But you take the gizzard, you split it in half, you, you take out the, the, the you clean them out, and there's like a silver lining on a gizzard on the, when you split it in half. You peel that off. You save your gizzards up. You say they're tough and chewy. Confit gizzard is fabulous. Store the, uh, the hearts and the gizzards and do a confit with those. Which again, for those who didn't hear the show recently, we cover them in fat. Duck fat would be perfect since it's a duck product, but we could use lard, we could use oil, we could use any kind of fat, and we put it in an oven at about 225 degrees. The oil's only ever going to hit about 190. And we do that for three, four hours. And gizzards done that way turn out amazing. Forget everything you know about gizzards. So all of this can, now I can do, you know, rabbit heart that way, and it's pretty good, but I don't get as much of a product. So I just think meat-wise, I get more from a duck. And management-wise, a duck's easier. The only place the rabbit wins for me is with the ability to quickly process it. Now, the other place the rabbit wins, and it sounds like this might be where you're at, is in a suburban situation where space is limited, and I just can't have a flock of 30 or 40 ducks running all over the place. So that's where I'm going to start saying, hey, maybe the rabbit is the... Is the better thing. Now, if I have rabbits in the same dwelling with chickens, and I have chickens both eating some of the rabbits' droppings and chopping them up and making a great compost, that's a huge, uh, what do you call it, a nutrient add to my gardens. So that has a lot of value to it. If I'm in a suburban area, I'm probably controlling the chickens anyway, so the control's less of an issue. So you have to adapt this stuff to yourself. Now, ducks and ponds and fish, can they be beneficial to each other? Absolutely, if the pond's big enough. I've seen parks and apartment complexes with hundreds of ducks on ponds ranging from a half to a couple acres. And I've never seen the ponds get nasty or stagnant or disgusting or anything and fish all about it. If you have fish like, if you're starting up south, you can have tilapia. They'll literally eat the duck droppings directly and the algae that grow off the duck droppings. So it's win-win. Catfish will as well. One of the, one of the like honey hole secrets of catfish here in Texas, and it sounds gross, but you got to think about what the animal's eating. They're eating vegetables. So cormorants, which they call water turkeys, migrate through here. 
And in the spring, they'll, they'll congregate in certain areas. And if you find where cormorants are roosting and congregating, there's channel catfish all up in there. They're feeding right on the droppings of the cormorants. So that can work. But you have to have a large, like an aquaponics-sized pond. You cannot let your ducks in there. They will destroy the balance of it like that fast. I think you're talking like tenth to quarter acre minimum. And in any pond that has ducks on it, you, you don't control when they're there. If you let them free range it, I would have a pump in that pond with a fountain spraying water in the air at least for six to eight hours a day. And that's what most of the apartment complexes and public parks that have geese or ducks do. And it seems to work very well for them. And they actually keep the, the you know, when it gets excessively weedy, they keep channels open in the weeds so that you can fish and access the pond. So that works on a larger scale. So there you go. Long answer, but hopefully that helps you out. But ducks versus chickens for me, man, I can do a lot of the stuff I said about doing with ducks with a chicken, but it just doesn't taste as good. The If you like duck, it's a higher dollar, higher quality, more premium meat with more nutrients, kind of like the eggs are. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Brian from California. Happy New Year to you, my friend. Um, question about training German Shepherds. I noticed that you have had German Shepherds and have a German Shepherd, and I was wondering if you could maybe let the listeners know and myself which method you used to train your German Shepherd. Um, that's it. Thank you. I can talk really more about my philosophy of dog training as a whole. Uh, Max is the first ever purebred German Shepherd that I've ever owned. Uh, not the only one I've ever worked with, but the only one I've ever, like, my dog that I own that I trained. Now, the thing about Max is he was about 18 months old when we got him. So he had a lot of his basic training worked out, with a big caveat to that. Basic training for Max was he knew not to poop in the house. That was about it. Was He was housebroken. He did not know sit. He did not know stay. He did not know come. He did not know shake hands. He did not know lay down. He didn't know play dead. Uh, all these basic commands and little tricks that I, I believe are really important to teach a dog. And yes, I think, uh, and I'll get to why, I think teaching a dog things like shake hands, lay down, play dead are actually really important core skills for any dog to have. And, and again, I'll get to why in a second. So uh, Charlie being maybe a better example of a dog that I got as a pup that wasn't housebroken that needed to be trained. I'm a huge fan of crate training. And I only want to do as much crate training as is necessary to get the dog house trained. And that's it. Unless I have a dog that's destroying things in the home. And then I've got a different problem. A dog that's destroying things in the home. And I don't mean a puppy that chews a pillow. I mean a dog that's going ape when you're not home. Has a separation anxiety disorder issue. And that dog has a mental issue. And that's way beyond the scope of what I can talk about here. Uh, because I actually try to select a dog. And by looking at the dog's behavior, I can tell that dog is not going to be that dog. There's people that I don't know. They just seem like wired to choose dogs that have mental problems. I have two family members that, in my life that I've seen dog after dog. They just choose like these mentally screwed up animals, uh, and, and I don't get it. I have enough ahead of me that I don't need a dog with a psychopathic disease. And I don't know. Maybe it's their energy that's creating that response in the dog. I, I think confidence... And leadership and positive, strong energy with no apprehension is absolutely the most important aspect of training a dog. There's a hundred methods. They all work to varying degrees. But if the trainer, the owner, the pack leader doesn't exude confidence, positive energy, and control, the dog won't either. 
and thinking about these two people, that may be more the issue. I'm just saying. Anyway, so how do I crate train a dog to, to, to housebreak the dog? Basically, I never give the dog the opportunity to pee or poop in the house by accident. So a puppy goes in the crate, and when they come out of the crate, they go to the door. I don't put them outside because that doesn't get them into the whole I leave the house to pee thing. Right to the door, open the door outside. Let's pee, let's poo. You're not coming in until you do. Let's bring them back in the house. They're all nice and evacuated of the bowels and the bladder, and they can play around for a while, and then if they're going to be unsupervised for any time whatsoever, into the crate. You'll find they don't go in the crater. They only do it once. They don't like it in their own space. And what I'm trying to do is teach the dog that, hey, the house is our space. It's your space, too. So you don't pee in your crate. You don't pee in the house. This is 100%. No, but our dogs are fairly well housebroken. Usually there has to be some sort of illness or discomfort or something to make a dog break his house training. We had Charlie do that recently. It was not good. But you could tell from the results he was sick, and he didn't want to do it. We were asleep, and he did. All right, so we have one in a year. So that dog is trained if that's the kind of thing that's going on. So the, the, the whole point with the crate training for me is to teach the dog some control, both of his, his bodily functions and his emotions. And if the dog has emotional control and bodily control, the crate becomes a place he can go when he wants to. And you'll find that when you crate train a dog, often they'll go into their crate on their own and sleep there because they're a den creature. So if we get past that, it's time to start working on behavioral things. And I am a big believer, sit, stay, come, lay. If I can teach a dog those four things, I can teach him as much as I have patience to teach him. Sit's easy. It's a physical thing. Command sit, hand underneath the, the armpit, hand on the butt, let's sit. Dog sits, let's pet the dog, let's give the dog a treat, uh, what have you. A treat doesn't always have to be food, sometimes it's love, and we just go from there. And I work on those commands. The reason I believe in things like sit and also like shake hands, is that it gets the dog into a mental state of this is my leader, okay? This, 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 this is my pack leader. I submit to their authority, not because um, I have to, but because they're demonstrating leadership that tells me that they're worthy of my submission, right? So... Pack animals, if you look at pack leaders in, in wolves and, and everything, it's not that the dogs that are submissive, you know, you can go all the way down in the pack to the Omega, the, the, the weakest link, but there's a lot of like you, what you would consider if the, if the pack leader is the captain, there's a lot of dogs that are lieutenants that if they went at the pack leader, they could probably physically over, it's not just physical dominance in the canine world, it's this leader is a leader. They lead naturally. I trust them the way that a dog trusts, which, by the way, is, is so much better than the way we trust. Dogs trust wholly, as long as their, their trust seems warranted. So you exemplify that, and some of these commands, and it also becomes something, if you have a dog that's like jumping on a, a, a person, that comes in the house, hey, sit. Dog sits. Hey, just shake hands. Hey, how you doing? Oh, oh, okay, yeah, that's right, because it checks them. It checks their energy. I've found with German Shepherds in particular, the only thing necessary to get a German Shepherd to respond to your command is to educate the dog as to what the command means. They are a lot like Retrievers, Golden Retrievers and, and Labrador Retrievers. 
the only th that's the only thing they really want is to please their pack leader, to please their family, to fit in. It, it, it makes them happy to give you what you want. It's just when you're telling a dog to speak and it's never encountered that before, it doesn't really know what, what the sound speak in your little hand making a motion means. But sooner or later, you know, they bark and you immediately reward the behavior. And as soon as they understand, oh, that's what that sound means. He wants me to acknowledge him verbally. They'll do it. As far as my dog and his interaction with our livestock, which is absolutely fabulous, I can't take any credit for it. The, the, the story of how we found Max was we went to the, the Humane Society. He was a beautiful dog. My wife always wanted a German Shepherd. I was totally ready to take him home. At the time, we didn't have livestock. We had cats. I was only concerned with how he would react with cats. The people from the Humane Society totally understood that. We went over to the cat area. They got a kitten out. They put the kitten in front of him very carefully, and he licked it on the head. And German Shepherds generally, the small and the helpless, especially if it's seen as part of the pack, is to be defended, not harmed. So I think a lot of times the best way to get a good dog is to start with a pretty good dog and turn him into an excellent dog. So just like you wouldn't go out and buy a property or take on a property without examining it and comparing it to other properties, it often makes sense to do that with a dog. So when we got Max, we were looking for a German Shepherd. We were looking for a big German Shepherd, not a little one. We were looking for a dog that could be easily trained and a dog that had a natural instinct to not harm small creatures or cats or anything different. So we started with that. Charlie, who's a pit bull pointer mix, which if you'd think a terrier cross with a pointer would be very hard to train to work with birds. Electric shock collar. And he's been shocked three times in his life. And now Dorothy broke the charger for the remote control that does a vibrate. And when he loses a little bit of his um, attention span, all we have to do is put the collar on him. And if, if, if it goes that, if it doesn't work right away, all you have to do is show him the remote. You don't have to buzz it anymore. So I haven't even bought a new charger for it. I think some people are intimidated or afraid to use shock collars. You get a good one. And they come with control levels. Ours has like a control level from zero to like 120. And so I set it on like 15. And so he has been shocked more than three times. He's been shocked effectively three times. So I set it on like 15 because I wanted to start low. He's doing something I don't want. Beep, beep, beep. Shock him. No response. 24. No response. 28. Little look, but not really. 32. Boop. 32 is the number, and the number shall be 32. Not 31, not 33, but 32. Some of you get that reference. And that was it, and it never had to go higher. And there were three different times where he was engaged in behavior I didn't want that he got the zap. And then it went permanently to vibrate, and all it ever took was knee, and it's like a pager sitting on old school pager on vibrate sitting on his neck. Oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And that checked his aggression. And now I can actually, if I have birds that I want moved and they're not responding to me, Charlie, get the chickens. Charlie, get the ducks. And usually he can differentiate if there's ducks in an area and chickens in an area. When I say chicken, he'll go to the chickens. When I say ducks, he'll go to the ducks. And he'll chase them just enough to get them going. And I'll go, okay, okay, and he'll stop. Now, I don't have a big method for that. I just gave you what I did. So first I taught him, let's not go after them. Then he would observe me pushing them. 
Then he would push them, and I would say, that's enough. If he didn't break at that point, I would vibrate his, his, his collar. And then it became, he doesn't need the collar anymore. Because, again, even though he's a more high-energy, more predatory breed than a German Shepherd that's bred to Shepherd, right? once he understood what his pack leader wanted, it made him happy to give that behavior. And I think that's the biggest thing I can teach you about dog training in general, unless you're trying to make an attack dog, unless you're trying to make a defense dog. If you're trying to get a dog to fit into your lifestyle, all you really need to do is convey to that dog, I am your leader, I am here to protect you, you are here to protect me. I will give you what you need to survive, and I will give you affection and love, and I want you to give that back to me. And here's the things that our pack does. And as soon as that dog actually understands this is what we do and this is what we don't do, that alone will make most dogs that don't have a mental disorder 90 to 95% compliant. And when they're young pups, just like a young child, they have less, less control, less, less self-discipline. As they get older, they have more and more self-discipline. With Max, when we got him, he had no discipline whatsoever because he had never been given any. And if there was a gate open, he would bolt. And it, it took yelling at the, to the point where you almost lose your voice. Stop! Now! And now it takes, come here, stay. So you also have to accept the pup, period. Just like you don't expect an eight-year-old child to do exactly what you've asked them to do the first time you ask them to do it and always get it right. You can't expect a one-year-old dog to do that. A one-year-old dog in the dog year thing is seven years old. So imagine a seven-year-old child that's already entered puberty. That's what you have in a one-year-old dog. You have a sexually mature seven-year-old. Actually, you have a sexually mature but mentally immature seven-year-old that's got all the hormones raging, all the desire to do what sexually mature makes you want to do, plus all the other, like, oh, that's cool. It's, and then... Then think of the seven-year-old having about a hundred times better sense of smell and hearing to stimulate the mind. That's a one-year-old pup. And it takes a lot of work, but man, does it pay off. Let's take another call. Good morning, Jack. This is D.H. from Colorado's Western Slope. My question is, in your minarchist utopia, uh, Libertas, I believe it was called, how would environmental protection be handled? Obviously, the ideal would be for every single citizen to have personal responsibility for not polluting, damaging, or otherwise uh, hurting anybody else or nature in the process of doing whatever it is they're doing. But as you said yourself, there's 10% of the population that will always disregard the needs of others for their own personal gain. So, once again, in Libertas, how do you handle environmental protection? Thanks. Let's start out with a little bit of a correction to the way that was open. And I know you don't mean anything by it, but this is the one thing that I think libertarians, uh, minarchist libertarians, anarcho-libertarians, anarcho-capitalists, pure anarchists all struggle with in dealing with anybody uh, who's not part of that mindset. We've never promised you that if you do things our way, you will have a utopia, ever. We've never misled ourselves to believe that it would be utopian in any way. We do not believe in utopia. We simply believe there's a better way than what we're currently doing. And we believe that stealing from other people is wrong, and I don't believe you can legitimize stealing from other people simply by creating something and calling it a state or a government, or giving people a certain amount of power. 
I don't think it's any less theft for the government to tax your income and property than it is for me to come to you and take it from you. I think they are equal levels of theft. So it's about what's right, and it's about being better than we are. It's not about utopia. So let's let's just correct that right from the get-go. And I think a lot of people that hear about libertarian philosophy, anarcho-philosophy, because they're saying, well, what is perfection? They write off anarchism and libertarianism. And I would tell you that libertarianism is more of a practical solution, and anarchism is more of a mental state, an individual choice. So, And I also want to say something about anarchism that I'm learning more and more to be the, the case. At one time in my life, I did have a church affiliation. I was a Methodist. And I went to a Methodist church, and I learned about the Methodist faith as a as a recovering Catholic, as I called it at the time. And I learned about a lot of the similarities. I also learned about what is the goal of, of the Methodist faith, and that is to become perfect. That's actually the goal, to be perfect, with the image of perfection being Christ. Okay. Now, I don't have that belief system, but that is, I'm telling you, and I'm not telling you to have it, I'm just telling you that is how the Methodist faith presents itself, right? And you might think, well, it's arrogant. It's not arrogant, because they also say, you'll never get there, but that has to be your goal. Because anything short of that will leave you falling short of what you could achieve, okay? The runner jumps as high as the hurdle, okay? I believe that any acceptance mentally that the state is necessary results in a larger state. The purpose of anarchism is to set the goal of no state, and if we set that goal, we'll get closer to it than we ever would by, by, by believing falsely the state is needed. Right? So we can walk toward minarchism with an anarchist belief that the state should not exist. I know some anarchists disagree with that. I don't care. You can believe whatever you want. That's part of anarchism. Okay? Anyway, so that's my take on this as a whole. Now, This is one of the many things that only the government can do, right? Only the government can preserve the environment. Except that the government and its regulations has probably led to more destruction of the environment than anything else has ever done ever in the history of mankind infinity. And the government spending money on stuff has led to the growth of industries that have done the greatest damage to the environment. This does not mean the government has never done anything to fix environmental problems. So, for instance, I grew up in the coal region. There was a tremendous amount of damage done to the environment due to this. The Clean Water Act and other things brought in in the 1980s took streams that a carp would have died in, and today you can go there, and those streams are now teeming with native brook trout. Well, the government had a success. No, the government fixed their own F up. Because all of that damage was done under government oversight and under a shitload of government spending. A lot of that coal was mined to do what? Power the war effort to, re to bring back the economy. So the government caused this damage and then me mitigated the damage they themselves caused. And this is what most things that you think government has done well are the result of. What about the Civil Rights Act? Okay, if the government didn't make it legal first to own a man and then to, to put him into a secondary state of equality, then we wouldn't have needed a Civil Rights Act to fix the damage the government created. The, the Civil Rights Act was not put in place to fix racism. It was put in place to fix an official, to fix an official policy that racism could be used against people 
in public spaces, and in business. So the, the government first initiated that. So we have to come to all our solutions from the minarchist, anarchist world with a full understanding that, no, we wouldn't have utopia here, but most of the things that we've been sold that we need a state to do, they screwed up in the first place. If you look at the environment in America before we got here with a state, and most of the things that would be analogous to a state in the New World existed from Mexico south, Aztecs, Incas, etc. The, the tribes of the north had much more of a true tribalism, shamanic relationship with each other. There was, you know, the, there was a League of Five Nations, there were things like that, but they were nowhere near the type of statism that you saw with the Aztecs and the Incas. And the environment here was great. The environmental damage in North America began with the rise of North American states. So, first of all, we have to understand that statism is bad for the environment. Period. Not that it can't ever change course a little bit, but in the end, wherever a state goes, the environment fails. So right there, we already know we would be ahead. I liken it to what Mark Shepard told one farmer. The farmer grew organic garlic and onions, and the season before lost $35,000 on their farm. Lost it. And he said, well, how are you in business? They said, well, we have full-time jobs and other things. The farm is just one thing we do, and it's really a family tradition. He said, great. So this year, take all your seed, uh, garlic, and onion, and just throw it on the field. Don't do anything. Whatever grows that year, you have some really selected seed, and do nothing. You just got a million percent return because you're not going to lose the $35,000 this year. Because you're not going to have any operating expenses whatsoever. Take the $35,000 you would have lost energy anyway and invest it into installing a perennial agriculture of trees, bushes, and vines. And Wall Street can never give you a return like this. So by doing nothing, you're ahead. So in some ways, there would simply be less damage if we didn't have industry enabled by government. So who does the biggest polluting? Industry. Where does industry get all its power in our world? Government. You've been sold a lie that, like, well, the Carnegies and, and what have you were brought back in check by progressive modern democratic policies. And No. They own the government, for God's sakes. So how would we handle it? Well, I think that the first thing is, again, as a minarchist, I think there is a legitimate role for government. I think some basic common sense things that you're not allowed to do to damage at least public property should be in place. What about your own property? If it stays confined to your property and you can prove it, you can screw up your own property if you want to. Since it's not sustainable, I think the problem would fix itself. I really do. I think that if you, if you allow businesses to operate the models they currently operate in, without the protection of government, that they would obsolete themselves very, very quickly. But where there's a clear environmental damage, there has to be a victim. And I think those victims could seek mediation and legal recourse on the grounds of damages. Now, what about dumping stuff into the oceans and stuff like that? This is where I'm a minarchist versus an anarchist. I think there's a legitimate role for a minor state, as long as we're constantly questioning how could we eliminate it. How can we build a society where it no longer is necessary? How can we make it smaller? Every day, we should try to make the influence of government in our lives and in our world smaller, less, 
smaller. The goal, perfection, no state. May never reach it, but that's the goal. But the oceans, I consider a public property. And I am, I'm fine with us saying you can't do things to do that. The problem is, if you give government a toehold, it takes a nation away. It only needs a beachhead of one big toe. Or as the, the Arabs say, once the camel's nose is in the tent, soon the whole camel will be in the tent. So how you balance that, I'm not sure. If I could answer that, well, I'd probably be leading the world right now. And I'm not, and I probably shouldn't be. But in my view, you have a very minimal environmental regulation that says there's certain things we can all agree to that we don't do. Right? We don't dump motor oil in forests. That type of thing. We can't dump poisons into the ocean, etc. And we let the natural evolution of human beings take over, which I believe is toward the better. It really is. It is the unnatural hierarchy created in a state-led society that screws everything up. How would we handle unemployment without the government? There probably wouldn't be very much of it. There probably wouldn't be very much of it. People would find a way to be useful. How do we handle overpopulation without government? Probably wouldn't be a lot of it. Actually, a declining population would cease to be a problem without government. The reason that we have a problem if this country goes into a population tailspin, which it might, which is one of the main reasons they're trying to bring immigration in, is Social Security. Because you need a lot more people working than not working for it to work. And right now we've gotten down almost two and a half to one. You know how like on, uh, you see these commercials like, you know, you adopt a kid in Africa and you give money every month, they send you his picture? Social Security's pretty much gotten to a place now where they could send you a picture of your old person, if you're a working person. And to make this really sink in, if you're the old person pissed about what I just said, they could send you two pictures and a half a picture of the two and a half people that work to pay your Social Security out. I know you worked your whole life, but the government spent your money. It's gone. Your money did not get put away. Your money did not get invested. They spent it in 1955. And somebody working in 2014 is having their money taken to pay your Social Security. So without government doing that, if we had a declining population, who would care? It's all the programs we have to support. There's so many things that we do right now that damage the environment and damage society that government has made in such a way that if they go away, the consequences are dire. In fact, you tell me, how many things are bad, but if we fix them short-term, it would be worse? Look at the pharmaceutical industry. Look at the healthcare industry. And then ask yourself how it got that way. Look at all of the environmental damage in the world And tell me what percent of it was truly created by private individuals with no power of government behind them. And what percentage was created by the state directly or indirectly through protecting monopolies, instituting regulations, squashing competition, and holding up the losses of private institutions. And I think you'll find that the vast majority of environmental damage is far more related to statism than private property rights. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is John from Blackhawk, Colorado. Uh, I have a question for you about corn. Uh, I don't think I've heard you speak much about growing corn, except that you have commented uh, about GMO and Monsanto, but not about growing corn on your own so much. 
Um, in fact, the last few times I've heard you mention corn, it seemed like you had a corn bad sort of tone about it. Um, am I off base here, or do you not like corn for some reason other than GMO? I ask because we actually like corn a lot. Uh, I have some Rocky Mountain corn, a.k.a. Indian corn, that I like to try to grow at my high-altitude location this coming summer as sort of an experiment just to see what the results will be. But I'm wondering if there's a reason you might not like corn in general. Maybe it's an effort versus yield thing, or it takes up too much space, or maybe there's just too much carbon in corn. I don't know. Uh, any thoughts of yours would be great to hear, and thanks for what you do. Enjoy the rest of your holiday break. I don't hate corn. I will tell you that my property is probably one of the most ill-suited places to grow corn in America. I have alkaline soils. I have shallow, rocky soils. And... Uh, I don't really want to spend a whole lot of time tending to a product that requires huge amounts of nutrient inputs, which corn does. Corn is one of the most nutrient-hungry crops that exists in the world, the end infinity. There's very few annual plants that require so much nutrient to produce two ears per stalk. So from a return of investment standpoint, especially on my property, the return is low for the investment required. So it's not a good fit for me. Some people live in places where you can pop some corn in the ground every year. It pops up and it produces very well. Where I lived in Pennsylvania in my grandfather's garden as a kid, we grew um, a hybrid corn that was a very good-tasting sweet corn called Silver Queen. And we grew about four rows of about, I think, 100-foot Every year. And it was a significant amount of corn. And we actually would go in and we would plant like a quarter of it. And we would wait two weeks and plant another quarter of it and wait two weeks and then plant the other 50% because you got too close to the end of the season for it to work. And that way we got a staggered harvest and we got the big harvest at the end and we would blanch it and freeze it to make it last. Because a lot of sweet corns, if you don't use them right away, they lose a lot of their sweetness. So I don't dislike it. I just don't have really the facilities to do well with it here. Uh, because it's constantly stressed in this environment, it's susceptible to a lot of pest damage. As the perennial agriculture comes up around it and the system becomes more complete over time, maybe we'll grow a little bit of it. But I've personally found that the most valuable thing about corn to me is that my birds eat it, and they like sorghum. And sorghum does great here. Sorghum handles the droughts a lot better. Sorghum is less nutrient-intensive. It grows larger root systems. Because it grows a larger root system, not only is it more drought-tolerant, but when I cut it off, it grows back, and I get a second to a third crop out of one stalk of sorghum. So I get multiple crops from one stalk. When it does die, that huge root system stays in the ground. It rots, and it helps improve the soil. So sorghum just does more for me. I also lump corn in this way. It's a commodity. It's a commodity crop. It, because of that, it's very difficult for me to make a cost-based scenario in which I'm not better off buying corn even if I'm buying organic. So I'm not saying you shouldn't grow it. I'm saying it doesn't work well for me. I'm also paleo, which means I'm minimizing corn, wheat, all starches anyway. So again, what does that leave me with? Corn is food for my animals. Sorghum is an equivalent food for my animals. It, tastes, it takes less effort. It grows better, and it produces more per plant. So what do you think I'm going to grow? I'm going to grow a sorghum because it's better for me. 
So I think everybody should make a decision for themselves about what's best for them. I do consider corn to be one of those things that's on the toxic list that's still something I imbibe in once in a while. Um, I don't think it's as toxic as wheat. I think it is truly a grain made by hand. I think the native and heirloom varieties of corn are probably a little bit better for us. Um, and I think in some places it's a reasonable crop to grow. It just doesn't work for me. That's all. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Lauren from Indiana. And um, I've made the comfrey tea, so to speak, where you take the comfrey leaves and put them in a five-gallon bucket, fill it up with water and seal it, have a little tap at the bottom of it after a couple months. It's, it's ready to go, and you think it's like one part the the liquid to um, like 15 parts water for your fertilization um, to get, you know, uh, a nice uh, watering fertilization from, from comfrey. And that's all ready to go, and I think I've got plenty for years to come probably in, in this setup. But I've also got vermicomposting going on where I am capturing water that, you know, drips down out of the bottom of the, of my, my worm bin, and I've captured, I don't know, at least a gallon or so of that, and I thought about, well, making like a, a compost tea of that, which I think would be pretty good, but what do you think about supercharging it by combining the powers of, of the comfrey tea and the vermicompost tea together? Love to hear your thoughts. Am I crazy? Well, you know, you don't have to answer that part. <laughs> all right, see you later. Well, you're not crazy, but you may not have all the information, and that may lead you to do something that may not be the best for your garden uh, or for whatever you're fertilizing. So the chief benefit of making a comfrey manure tea, a green manure tea, and it does stink, and it smells like manure. It smells like sewage. Uh, and it works really great. You can dilute anything from 8, eight to 1 to 20 to 1 in water when you apply it. Uh, it. It does have some nitrogen and some phosphorus. But what it's like sky high in is potassium. And that's a good thing. It's part of your NPK uh, trifecta of the most important nutrients for the growth of plants. If you have those three nutrients, as modern agriculture has shown, plants will grow. There's a lot of other nutrients that are important too. And there's a lot of micronutrients and dynamic accumulated nutrients that are in a comfrey tea that are good, but the dominant pill, so to speak, potassium. What do plants use potassium to do? Well, the main thing they use potassium to do is to produce their fruit. So a squash plant really uses its potassium not only but chiefly for when those female blossoms come on and they open up and they get pollinated, and now i got to grow a pumpkin or a zucchini. Okay. Tomatoes, when those, all those leaves, all those little yellow flowers come on and they set to a little green fruit and turning that green fruit into a great big lovely red or yellow or black or purple thing depending on what kind of tomato it is. Right? So that's what the potassium is really for is the, the fruiting phase. Okay. What this means is sometimes if you give a plant too much available potassium, because that's the other thing, the potassium in com uh, comfrey tea is very bioavailable. It's like getting a B12 shot versus eating a piece of liver. It's straight into the, to the bloodstream, so to speak, of the plant. So the plant can be caused to set early fruit and start to draw energy for the production of that fruit before it's really put on its skeleton, which, of course, is its green growth, its stems, its twigs, its leaves, its vines. So it needs a very high amount of nitrogen first, a little bit of potassium, 
and a little bit of phosphorus as it develops that. And more phosphorus than potassium early on. If you have plants that have a bluish hue to them and they just don't look right, often that's, that's a, uh, 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 phosphorus deficiency. So the nitrogen and phosphorus are more important early on. So you generally want to use most of your comfrey tea a little bit later in the season when the structure of your plant is strong. And now we want to encourage and, and help it through that fruiting or nutting stage, wherever it's at that mature stage. And does this mean you wouldn't put it on a lettuce or you wouldn't put it on a shard or something like that? No, it doesn't. But it also means that you might delay until mid-season to apply that when it's more of its long-term adult health. That, you know, or with beets or carrots or tubers, you might wait until it's got the top growth and you know that that underground growth is really beginning and then you might add that potassium at that standpoint. So if we just make up a great big compost tea and throw comfrey uh, uh, manure in there with it, it ain't going to hurt nothing, but it may give us a little more potassium than we want at the wrong time. Right, So it's about timing. Then the other reason is what is the purpose of comfrey manure tea? It is to provide essential nutrients and potassium to our plants. When we make a compost tea, right? what are we trying to do? Mainly, we are trying to supercharge microorganism activity. So those are two different worlds. So the reason we brew a compost tea is we take all those little good bugaboos, all those little happy nematodes and uh, you know all those little microarthropods and all those little things that live in the compost, And we are like putting it in a Petri dish and multiplying them from millions to kabillions. So we agitate the water with some type of air or circulation to, 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 to brew them into uh, billions and billions and trillions and kabillions of them. So then when we put it out there, we can take a little bit of compost and get the microbial activity that we would have gotten from tons of compost from a few pounds. That's why we do it. So it would make more sense, really, to brew your compost tea using your worm juice and anything else you want to do it with, like a tea bag full of good compost, and do them separately, or add the comfrey to when you're spraying or applying or whatever at the right time in the season. Either is fine, really, because you're just doing less work then. But it's not really like the composting manure tea is going to do much for uh, the compost tea, right? They're two different things. One is more of a pure manure, and there's probably not as big of a biological activity in there. And then maybe there would be, I don't know, but what leads me to think not So when I look at the work of people like Dr. Elaine Ingram that knows more about soil than I ever want to, I've never seen like, oh, add comfrey tea to this, right? I would just say that's just another thing to do. Uh, let's take another one. Hi, my name's Pierre from uh, Western Australia. I have a question for expert uh, team member Steve Harris in regards to battery banks. I've just set up a very simple version, uh, one marine battery, Uh, a CTEC um, battery charger since I was unable to get a Schumacher over here um, and I was just wondering since I've actually got it plugged into the mains uh, is there any chance of say being hit by lightning and shorting out various things would the battery be damaged or anything I know you can get like uh, surge protectors and as I understand it the surge protectors on the strips uh, protect against uh, surges in Uh, the power 
um, the, the power companies and stuff where it will be a surge in the actual plant, but I don't think they actually protect against uh, lightning strikes. Uh, am I overworrying, or is there a legitimate way to get past this, or what do you suggest? Thanks very much. Cheers. Uh, I have a great answer for you from Stephen Harris. It's a pretty quick and easy question for him to answer. And I think maybe even the more important part of Steve's answer to listen to will be the second half of what he has to say. Sometimes Steve can come off a little bit strong. And uh, sometimes you may wonder why, uh, uh, you know, that it's tolerated from time to time. And you're going to hear a perfect example of why. Uh, you want to talk about hearing a man step up to the plate, uh, listen to the answer to the question, and then listen to the second half. And uh, I just want to say uh, to my good friend Steve Harris, thank you. I appreciate everything you've done for the show, and I hope to be working with you for a long time into the future. And, guys, you're about to hear why. Pierre from Western Australia. This is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. The SeaTac is a very fine battery charger available throughout most of, most of the world. It's very popular in Europe and other places. It's hardly in the USA, and when we do find them here in the USA, they're pretty expensive compared to the Schumachers. Uh, you, your batteries are not connected to your mains, your main electri electricity. The battery charger is. A power surge in the mains is not going to harm your batteries, even if your batteries were sensitive, and they are the furthest thing from sensitive. They're very hardy. Your batteries are sponge plates of lead and lead oxide, so power surges are not going to hurt them. If you want to put a surge protector on the battery charger, that's okay. But for the most part, you're over-worrying about it, and congratulations on getting your battery bank done and being more pre prepared. I know you'll really love it when you need it. Since this has been a short answer, I want to take a moment and apologize and say that I'm sorry to the listeners of TSP. A few of you out there care enough about me that you took the time to email me and tell me that I was hurting myself and I was self-destructing. In short, I, Steve Harris, have been a royal ass. When I answer questions that you have called in, I convey the answers with a great deal of confidence. And that confidence for many listeners has crossed the line into arrogance. And that's offensive. Some of you were quite angry at me. And I appreciate you taking the time to communicate that to me. I have listened. I've also made people not want to approach me with questions for fear that I would jump down their throat with an angry answer. This too, I am sad to say, I'm guilty of, and I'm sorry. I really love answering questions for the TSP listeners. I really look forward to it, and I enjoy it. It is a fantastic outlet for me, and it gives me a great deal of satisfaction to be able to help people one-on-one. -on -one. I love being on the show, and I love to help people, and I want you to feel that I am open and friendly to all of your questions, and that you may approach me with anything. And I cannot do that if I'm acting like an ass. So again, I'm deeply sorry. 
I feel very bad, and I have given this a great deal of thought. I'm sorry that I have lacked tactfulness, shown arrogance, pissed you off, and I promise to be a better question-answer person for you in 2015 and beyond. So, please, let me help you if you have a question. I get about half dozen emails a day with questions. Uh, all of you are always welcome to email me personally on anything energy, fuel, or preparedness related. Sometime, sometimes I even answer your questions at midnight. My email is in the upper right corner of stephen1234.com. And if you want to hear your question on the air and think everyone will benefit from listening to it, please call it, in, it into TSP ThinkLine. I promise I will take care of you. Thank you. And again, I'm sorry that I have strayed. It won't happen again. Uh, I just real quick want to acknowledge that it takes a, a big person to come out like that and admit to issues like that and to bear their soul. So thank you, Steve Harris. Uh, this is why you always have been and always will be uh, a great friend uh, and on a very short list of people that I really consider true friends. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Ann Medford from the forum calling from Maine with a question about uh, butchering rabbits. We have um, some meat rabbits that we're looking to butcher and have some questions about how best to proceed. We know how to butcher them. Our question is, um, do we dry age them in the refrigerator for a time before we um, cryo-back them to put them in the freezer? Thank you, and uh, love the podcast and all that you're doing. Big inspiration to us. Thank you. I'm not the rabbit guy, you know, so I, I had to do some research into this and what do other people that keep rabbits for meat, uh, for, for personal use and for resale have to say on this. And basically the answer was, uh, you can certainly dry age them. It certainly doesn't hurt things at all. Uh, it may really not be necessary. And one of the big things with dry aging meat is you end up with a far more tender product and, uh, rabbits, especially as you start culling your older uh, rabbits and re, you know reinstating the breeding stock, can get a little bit tough. Um, it seems that most people that do a lot with rabbits feel that they get a much more tenderizing effect by brining rabbit in salt water than they do through aging. I am the, of the opinion, after doing as much research as I could on this for you with a, you know a single subject on a single show, that it may be best to do both that it would make a lot of sense to set up the refrigerator so you could actually hang a rabbit and truly dry age it instead of having it laying in a pile of rabbits. So if you could hang them uh, and let them air dry for two or three days and let them age a little bit, a little bit of lactobacillic acid uh, break down. And it's also the case that whenever you butcher any animal, the muscle fibers actually tend to relax a little bit over time. And generally, bigger, larger, and more red meat need more time. Uh, or they're going to have some toughness to them. So, I mean, beef really should be dry aged for seven days before you do whatever you're going to do with it next. No matter what you're going to do, it's really... And then chicken is more like a 24-hour thing. And that would lead me to believe that rabbits would be 24 to 48 hours, just based on the similarities of structure and what have you. So, um, my personal recommendation would be uh, a 48-hour age, 
and then uh, you know do them in a vacuum seal or whatever and 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 fr and, uh, and freeze them. And then if you want to brine, I would actually be a much bigger fan of brining, like take the animal out, defrost it, and then brine it overnight before cooking. And here's why. If I brine my rabbit before I freeze it, in some, in some ways I'm doing the opposite of what dry aging does. Dry aging is going to let a lot of the moisture wick out of the meat. So I'm freezing a low-moisture meat, and it's going to freeze better. It's going to have less potential for freezer damage. I want as much moisture out of the meat as I can get without going into dehydration mode. I don't want any blood or bodily fluids left behind. I want it bled out well. And dry aging helps with some of that. So I think that that's the approach I would personally take, but I, I you know, with the caveat of I am not the rabbit guy. My, my rabbit experience is mostly shooting wild rabbits and eating them. And what we always did with Wild Rabbit when we shot it was, if it was going to be frozen, it we left it in the refrigerator for a couple days. I mean, that's just all there was to it. We skinned it, gutted it, left it in the refrigerator for a couple days, and then decided we're going to eat it or not. If we're not going to eat it, then we froze it. If we were going to eat it, we almost always did a little bit of salt brine. And again, I'm the kind of guy, I don't measure everything. So, you know, you're looking at a half a handful of salt to a bowl of water. You know, something when you mix it up and you put your finger and you taste it, it kind of tastes a little bit like ocean water, like that much salt. And then you throw your rabbit in there. You let it sit in the refrigerator overnight. I do that with squirrel too. So that's more of a cooking technique than a storage technique. I know some people do brine and then freeze. I'm never in a fan of putting meat into a big tub of water for a long period of time before it goes into a freezer. About the only time I do that is when you're processing like a lot of ducks or chickens or something like that, and you're doing it to cool them. But once they're cool, I want them out of that water and then parted up or frozen whole. Uh, and I, I really think a lot of people that are doing rabbit would be better off parting it out, quartering it out, because different pieces cook at different speeds. A leg is a lot bigger than a backstrap. So that, that's another little piece of advice I might have for you. But uh, I... I Here's how I look at aging. It might help. It can't hurt. So it's probably worth doing. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Mike in North Carolina, suburban gardener on the, on the forum. I have a question about black, wild black cherries in my uh, food forest in my suburban lot. Uh, details. I'd like to go ahead and bring in wild black cherries into my food forest on the edge seen as that would possibly be, in addition to the herbal uh, remedies of that, it could also be a distraction for the wildlife in the area. Give me your thoughts, and looking forward to hearing from you. It's not a bad idea. It just It has to be properly used and thought about in, in a time situation. So suburban is very nebulous. Suburban lot could be an acre. Suburban lot could be a half an acre. Suburban lot could be a tenth of an acre. Uh, you're talking about a big tree. A big, tall, giant tree that produces a lot of shade. If it's a pretty good-sized lot and you're thinking northern edge, it has a lot going for it. Number one, it's a long-term timber crop. Uh, it's, a, it's a tree that at the end of its life is a very high-dollar timber crop. And if grown and trained into a very straight-growth model, up, up and away, so to speak, it produces a very, very high-class timber. 
it also is a good wildlife mitigation strategy if your mitigation strategy is for birds. <clears throat> Here's the thing with birds. They prefer to be as high up as possible in a tree, thank you. And if they can get what they want to eat high up in a tree and you're doing most of your suburban food forestry pruned at head height and down or about as high as you can reach and down, well, those birds don't have a high degree of desire to come way down there where cats are and people are and dogs are and other things that might eat them are. So it would probably be very effective for that. The areas of concern, suburban and a very large tree, very large specimen tree. So it's probably not going to be something you do a lot of pruning with. It's not a tree that's going to lend itself well to being pruned at like 12 or 15 feet and maintained there. Cherries really want to grow, but I guess you could. The key is, though, as you, as you try to stop the growth of a tree like that, it's going to become far more canopied in its, its habitat, and it's going to do a lot more shading where you may not want it. If it's in the right property area, so it doesn't shade out what you, you know, what you need to leave some sun into, no big whoop. But the other thing to consider is your neighbors. So, are you going to shade out neighbors that don't want to be shaded out? So you have to take the social design considerations into there uh, long term. If you kind of back up to a riparian area or something like that, no big deal. The other design consideration for your neighbors is what do birds do when they eat? They are very quickly metabolize things, and they poop. What happens when they eat something like a wild black cherry? They poop black cherry juice, poop. So if you have really close neighbors along those trees, and all of a sudden those birds are pooping a whole bunch of cherry juice-stained poop all over like their picnic table or on their pool or something, it could be an issue. So I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying like at least think about that as you plan, because you could put other large trees in there, that would be less of a problem, okay, from a, a, a stained poop problem and maybe do a better job. So one thing you might consider, if you're in the right climate for it, because it's not as cold-hardy as a black cherry, would be something like white mulberries. If we put white mulberries in there, uh, something like uh, the trademark name Beautiful Day that's available from Rain Tree or something like that, These will make birds poop, but they won't make them poop purple mulberry poop stain or black cherry poop stain. So at least it's just bird poop. It's not stain poop. So for instance, in my food forest, it's one of my, it's like the only property line that actually borders a neighbor. And we put it there though because it was the best place for it. So I wanted mulberries in there. So we put in white mulberries for that social design consideration. So that if the birds ate a lot of them and pooped next door, it would just be bird poop, not stain poop. So that's like another thing. So shade uh, for the neighbors and poop tolerance for the neighbors. Otherwise, it's a great tree. And if you were going a little bit larger scale for some people that might be, I might not say just use black cherry. Why not use black cherry, black locust, black walnut, kind of a mixture of things on that edge. Because then you're kind of going into a zone four and a half, zone five type planted plant situation. So um, that's really a great idea, I think. So I, I like your idea. I like any tree that gets the canopy higher than the protected canopy that we're going to protect below it and feeds birds as long as we take into consideration how our neighbors might feel about it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Andrew from West Michigan. Just had a comment on uh, your show, episode 1486, The Simple uh, Preparations make your life better. Um, 
I said it laughing so hard when you got into that rant about Jack's a jerk. I, you know, I'm so much worse off for having water and food stored and being able to take care of myself and stay warm in the cold when the power's out. And my wife happened to walk up to me while I was listening to that part, and she just sort of shaking her head, you know, what are you listening to? And after explaining to her for the thousandth time who you were and why I listened to you, she actually kind of perked her interest, so that might have got her on board to start listening. But it made me think, you should bring back Jack's rants. You know, even if it's a once a month or, you know, I know you got a lot of shows that you want to put out, topics to cover, but, you know, maybe just have one random day instead of a listener call day to, you know, Jack going tactical on the things that are on his mind. And I think that'd be great. We, I missed the old episode that wasn't a long time, and those were some of the best ones in the car, screaming at people, you know, to get out of your way. And, you know, it's an on-ramp, you know, you're supposed to let me on and all that good stuff. So keep up the great work. I don't think anyone's going to call you in June. Anyone that tries it anyway. Uh, keep up the great work of the show. Thanks, Jack. There's no doubt that at least one of the many pillars that TSP was built upon were some of my rants, especially in the early days. Um, the, the reduction in rants is, is multiple reasons. Number one, there's a whole segment of the audience that just doesn't really dig the whole ranting thing. Uh, two, I've become a lot more at peace with the problems because I've become a lot more in tune with the solutions. So I, I tend to rant a little less because I have a lot more to point to of what we can do to do things right. And I think in some ways it's more productive than pointing to what's going on from a wrong standpoint. Though I still do get charged up and point out stupidity at times and go on a bit of a rant. And I think there's a certain entertainment value to that. And I also think there's kind of a wake the hell up value to that, that that hits people sometimes that have become a little bit too comfortable with the way things are and not enough of a force for changing things to the way things can be. So there will always be some level of ranting in what I do. However, it's probably never going to be as prevalent as it was when I was stressed the hell out in a car, and that's a good thing for my health. But I do think there's a value to people that are in a certain state that need to hear it put that way to get through the thick skull. And I do think there's some people that just enjoy it. So what I what I started doing for a while, and I'm going to start doing again, is putting a whole segment on YouTube called Jack's Rants. And the way, the way I look at that is, like, so you see the title Jack's Rants. I don't like ranting. Don't watch that. Right? And anybody knows what they're getting. And I think there are a lot of things that do frustrate us all. And I think that ranting can serve two real purposes and not really much of anything else. One, it can wake people up to reality. And two, it can be emotionally cleansing. All right, I think it actually is a good thing for every once in a while for everybody that has pent-up aggression and anger about things to vent. I think there'd be a lot less people going up in bell towers, if you know what I mean, metaphorically, if people just let out the aggression, let out the anger, let out the frustration. So at some, in some ways, the early TSP episodes when I was in my car, some of that ranting was my own personal therapy, right? And I, I, and I was venting on the audience. And fortunately, that was well-received because I think a lot of people felt the same way and still do. So occasionally I'll do it on the air. It'll be a lot less. Um, it'll usually be, if you're looking for it, it'll usually be on Mondays because Mondays we talk about a lot of things that are in the news. And if you want stuff to rant about, it's in the news. But you might have noticed that my ranting has taken far more of a politically agnostic stance at this point because I've realized we are being screwed by a left foot in our ass and a right foot in our ass, and there's no way around it. 
Um, do you know what? The House just passed with monumentous support of both parties a bill to further fund Obamacare. That's what your new Republican majority just gave you. A great big right foot up the ass. Yay, America, right? So uh, there's plenty of things to rant about like that, but I think you'll see more of them on YouTube. I have one already in the can that just needs to be edited. And um, that is about, well, I won't tell you. You have to wait for it to come out next week. But if you go, if you make sure you're subscribed to my YouTube channel. I'm trying to plan on maybe doing one a week because uh, there's at least one thing a week that I can rant a little bit about. Uh, but to, to do that in a venue where you've, you've kind of paid the emission price to see that. So I think that a lot of people, you know, they might go to a baseball game to see a baseball game. And if there's a fight, there's a certain segment of the audience that, like, they're entertained by the fight. But if they wanted to see a fight, they would have paid to go to a boxing match or an MMA match. So I think that since that's kind of a niche thing, I'm trying to, to at least put that in a place where if that's what you want, go over here to see that. I hope that makes sense. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Kevin from West Virginia. I was just wanting to know a little bit more about Verma composting. Maybe I've missed it, and you've talked about it before, but just want to know your thoughts on it. Um, is it something that you do or you recommend people doing? And if so, what are some of the best practices in terms of harvesting the new dirt and what to do with the compost tea? Thanks for all you do. We talked a little bit about compost tea earlier, but basically – Whenever you build a worm bin, you create a way for the worm juice, which is no better word for it, to drain out of it. And that won't burn. It doesn't really need anything done to it. It can be put straight onto garden beds and, and trees and things like that. But it's so valuable, it usually makes sense to dilute it at about a 4 or an 8 to 1 ratio, somewhere in that range, just to stretch it and get more out of it. Because it's so vital and so valuable and does so many things to improve the microbiology of your, your environment that you really don't lose anything by diluting it, other than maybe it's a little bit less of your, your nitrogen, that there's some nitrogen contribution from in it. Uh, so the area might get a little less nitrogen, but the totality of the microorganism boost and the overall boost of the environment is enhanced through the use of uh, dilution. And you can brew it as a compost tea with by itself or other things to enhance that microbiology and stretch it even further if you want to. As far as why you don't hear me talking about it, you don't also you also don't hear me talk a lot about raising cattle. So the reason you don't hear me talk a lot about raising cattle is not because I don't think raising cattle is a good idea, but because I don't raise cattle. So if you hear a lot about cattle on the show, it's probably because there's a guest on that knows a lot about raising cattle. So you don't have me talking about cattle because I'm not a cow expert. And my limited knowledge of cows is confined to answering a few questions here and there and giving you my thoughts on how they can be used in a landscape or whatever. But you don't hear me, like, doing a whole show dedicated to raising cows because I'm not a cow dude, right? So that's part of why I don't do vermicomposting because I don't do it. So let's talk about why I don't do it. I'm a big believer in the permaculture principle of appropriate technology. 
And I think that one of the things that gets lost in appropriate technology, especially among purple-breathing permaculturists, is appropriate technology isn't something that you do because it's appropriate for everybody to do it. It's technology that you do or use because it's appropriate for you and your lifestyle. And if we were doing an analysis of a property, I would put it under the heading of something that's not in permaculture design courses that I think should be, and that is you would put it under the heading of a client analysis. And if you're the client, then you analyze yourself. So how many hours does this guy want to work? What type of waste does he produce? What type of property does he want? And in my client analysis of myself, what do I have? I have chickens. They may be not long for this world. I have ducks and I have geese. They eat and process every bit of waste my home produces. So if I actually put in worm bins, I would actually have to be taking away waste that's currently going to poultry to give it to worms. And the byproduct would be I would get worm castings and worm juice. And is that more valuable than supplemental feed to my birds and the manure and processing that they produce anywhere that I want them to just by moving a kiddie pool to tell the ducks where to go? And the answer is, for the extra work, no. So if I had an abundance of household waste and I didn't have another creature to process it, the worm would be great for me. To me, worm beds are really great for educational programs and for suburban-type situations. In other words, the suburbanite generally doesn't produce enough waste to do effective composting. You really want about a yard of material, a cubic yard of material, three foot by three foot by three foot, cubed, uh, to do effective composting in a hot compost. A slow compost can go anaerobic. It's not the greatest in the world. It's okay here and there. You can turn it, and sooner or later you'll get what you want. But, boy, if you were just producing, you know, uh, a couple cups of waste a day, you know, a, a small amount per week, well, that's just perfect for a worm bin. Because then it's not like a cake that you've baked for 30 minutes and then you added more batter, which is what a lot of suburban compost piles are like. The worms will process it, and they will adjust their... Uh, their population, so to speak, based on how much you're feeding them. And you're not getting dirt, you're getting castings. All that wonderful-looking, gritty stuff that comes up at the top, those are castings from the worms. So that's what you're putting down is a fertilizer. It's very high in nitrogen, very high in other biologicals, and, of course, it probably has worm eggs in it, too. And you know, But the problem is most of your composting worms won't do really well out in the soil. So just in my lifestyle and my design of my property, a worm bin would just be one more thing for me to deal with when all I have to do is take the stuff out and give it to the chickens and the ducks and let them do their thing with it. The other thing is, on that, on the other side, though, I am trying to practice as much vermicomposting as I can. I just don't want to take care of the worms. So instead of composting worms, what I have are earthworms in the ground. When we moved here and I started digging, I never saw a worm here. I, I dug my first four garden beds by hand. And if you saw the results of that, you'll know why there weren't a lot of worms there. It just wasn't really worm-friendly environment. Now in the places I've done sheet mulching and I've, I've cultivated for a couple of years or the birds have processed stuff, you dig there, you find worms. Not as many as I want, but a lot. So I'm a big believer. I would rather have a garden heavily mulched that naturally attracts worms. And if I have a little bit of household waste that I'm going to, to want to process through worms, I'd rather just go out, pull the mulch back around the tomato plant, put that stuff, that you know, banana peel and that, you know, little bit of lettuce and whatever on the ground, put the mulch back over it, and let the worms live in the ground where the worms belong, instead of putting them in a box. But if I had a small suburban yard, 
and I was eating a lot of vegetables and fruits, it would probably make sense then to put the worms in a box. Right? So I'll put bees in a box if I want honey. All right? If I just want pollination, I'll improve the bee habitat so the bees will come to my property. Because a bee is better off not in a box. We put bees in boxes as beekeepers because there's an advantage to us to do that. But bees were not meant to live in a box. So now we have to be responsible for their care. Supplemental feed, we have to check them for diseases. We have to do all types of things as a beekeeper. So if you want honey, it's worth the extra effort. If you have a surplus of organic matter you can't get rid of any other way, and you want worm juice and worm castings, it's worth putting a worm in a box. So that's the approach that I take. And I think there's a lot to be learned from a lot of permaculture techniques in that type of thinking. Do I have an herb spiral? No. Why? Because I have perennial herbs all over the place. And I think an herb spiral is much more a space-saving situation for a suburban, urban type of landscape. And I think it works best in a Mediterranean climate. I think in a lot of other places in the United States, an herb spiral turns into a weed spiral. And it's not really that advantageous or necessary. If you want one, just because you think it's cool and you're willing to take the effort to maintain it, fine. I'd rather have a great big huge patch of parsley and a great big huge patch of sage and oregano growing all over the place and get my herbs by just going wherever that is and picking it up. I won't fault you for an herb spiral, but I won't put it into my design just because it's a permaculture technique. And just because it has to be there. And I think a lot of people with worm farms and stuff like that, they do it because you have to have that. So I think you actually look at your design, you analyze your property, and you analyze yourself as a client. Or you analyze your client if you have a client and say, does this technology fit them? Whether it's a worm farm or an herb spiral or water catchment or a food forest or this type of plant or that type of plant or an annual garden or not an annual garden. I think all of those decisions are made by, made by a totality of analysis. Anyway, with that, I've wrapped up another show. I hope you enjoyed it today. Remember, if you want to be on a show like this, follow the rules and call the number 866-65-THINK. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko wishing you a great weekend. I hope I've helped you today figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution is you. 